Hello, and welcome to part four in a collector series. If you haven't listened to the first three, I urge you to go back and do so. Today's episode is a continuation of an interview Mike gave to TBTL Luke and Jen in January of 2009. I'm your host, Christy, out here in the city that never sleeps, Linwood, Washington. And again, I'm joined by Mike Frizzell in the city of brotherly love, Kyle, Texas. This week, Mike takes off his co-host receptionist skirt and puts on his Barbara Streisand in Prince of Tides ass-masking therapist pantsuit to be both host and guest. Hello, Mike. Hello, Christy. <laughs> so today, I don't want to give too much away about what we're going to hear today, but um, today's segment is Mike turning himself in and his six-year, is it six-year? It was uh, five years and 11 months. Five years and 11 months as resident of Sheridan Correctional Facility in Sheridan, Oregon. The first three episodes have been about Mike's addiction, life of crime, and living on the run. But today's show is about prison life. Mike, uh, did you want to give some color commentary about what we're about to hear? Well, I think out of all of the... uh, aspects of my experience this is the one that people are most curious about especially men uh are curious about what is life like in prison because i think uh, a lot of guys have like um i don't want to say fantasies but <laughs> but fantasies daydreams <laughs> about about uh doing some crime like you know you'll 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 be walking by the armored car and you'll be like well what would happen if i took this you know took all this money or whatever and then got caught and then what happens in prison or whatever um so there's a lot of curiosity around that and uh, so this uh particular section of the interview addresses a lot of those concerns and obviously we'll address it through more questions uh, with the guests that we'll have on later on in the show and also um, uh, tomorrow night or, or next week's edition. So uh, I encourage anyone who after hearing this um, played back and Christie's questions and um, big countries contributions um, to ask any more probing questions because yes, this is the meat of the matter for most dudes that think, you know, <laughs> one day I might go to prison and what's going to happen to me and how can I handle it? Yeah. And this definitely was my favorite episode just because the other three um, were so kind of down, like a life of addiction and <laughs> right. sadness and intense, and intense. Yes. And this one was well, I don't want to give it away, but playing sports and making friends, like <laughs> mm-hmm. it made it seem like camp a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, so let's go to the clip now. Get in, this is my second day. I got a 10 year stay. I learned my first lesson in the penny don't play. I seen a brother kill another because they said he was gay. But that's the way it is. It's been that way for years. When his body hit the ground, I heard a couple of cheers. It kind of hurt me inside. They were glad he died. And I asked myself just who had the power. The whites, the blacks, or just the gun tower. Tonight, though, we arrive at the at the end of, of this chapter of Mike's life. Um, after, uh, after robbing somewhere between 30 and 60 banks um, after uh, becoming very addicted to prescription drugs, after uh, moving to San Diego um, by himself, after guest hosting a sports talk radio show, after detoxing at his apartment where 
he, thank God, wasn't able to get down to his suicide rig he'd built in the garage. After all this, uh, Mike found himself uh, in Bellevue at the police uh, office. He turned in his driver's license, and two policemen had come to escort him uh, back to the holding area, which would then lead into, uh, well, five to seven years of his life. What was your original sentence that you got? My sentence was for 71 months. So that's, was that six and change? How many years is that? It is just uh, short of six years. And in the in the federal system, you do 85% of your time if you're a good boy. So I did 60 months on that. So I did five years. And you had never been in in jail or prison or anything before this? No. And so your first day... Uh, when you get to you know the jail, I guess you haven't been sentenced yet, but you know that this is your life. Some version of this is your life for a long time to come. What's going through your mind, the sights and the sounds, as you, you begin the, the the first day of the rest of your life, as it were? My first night was a little bit different than your average inmate's first night because I turned myself in at the Bellevue Police Station, and it was about five thirty, six o'clock at night. And you can't stay overnight at that jail, I don't think. It just it seemed very Barney Fife. There was really, you know, it was the cleanest holding cell I've ever seen. Uh, actually, I've seen a lot of them since. So it was very clean, and, and they seemed very anxious to pass me into the custody of, of somebody who's used to dealing with, you know, real criminals rather than, you know, some, some yeah, they they're square shoplifters. Yeah, they're mostly set up for a a, a Sonic or Seahawk to sleep off a, <laughs> you know, t- too much champagne enjoyed in Juanita or something. They're not really, and they're passing back through Bellevue. They weren't ready for a FBI top ten must wanted. Frank no, Robert so guy. so I was picked up by King County fairly quickly, and they wanted to book me into King County Jail, but for some reason it was too late that day to book in a federal inmate. So I was taken to the Immigration and Naturalization Service jail, which uh, is no longer there, but it used to. It was on Airport Way, um, near Dearborn, and it was a really rundown, old-timey jail with the slidey bars and and uh, you know if you had a tin cup, you could you know <laughs> run it across the bars, and they they stuck me in there for the night. It was only an, probably about a half hour after I got checked in there that the FBI agent from my case came to visit me. Um, his name was Jerry Howe. He's since retired. And he came to visit me. They they pulled me out of the my jail cell, and they put us in, a, in an interview room there. And he I can only describe him as extremely hostile to me. And I think the reason – it wasn't because I was a criminal, I don't think – uh, I, it, I just got the impression that he was really angry that he didn't catch me. Mm. Um, it probably was not a great thing for his career that he got assigned to this case and the guy just kept going and going and going. And he just never, he never, never got me. Yeah. And then you turned yourself in. It was like you retired. Yes. Right after yes. You, you sort of won the championship of being a terrible person. Right. Right. I, I, I was retiring from being a terrible person. He didn't catch me. And he uh, he kept asking me all kinds of questions about what I had done and where I'd been. And and I, I didn't have an attorney yet, but I, you know, you've seen enough TV to know you just don't say anything. So I was just staring at him and saying, I'm not going to answer that. 
Because even though you were admitting to everything and you were willing to do your time, you also um, you were not trying to actively make it worse on yourself, right? Right. right. Because I, I knew that that he was going to, you know, in his state of mind, it just seemed like he was going to just throw out any kind of wild thing and see if he could get me to say, yeah, I did that. Or, I mean, I, I didn't really know what he had in mind. He just seemed incredibly hostile. So that interview didn't last very long. It was probably about a half an hour because I had nothing to say. I, you know, I'll see you in court, I guess, is, is, is what I had to say. So they put me back in my little old timey cell and I didn't sleep at all. And then the next. What was going through your mind? I was, um, I was pretty scared. Uh, I, the jail was not a, that jail was really, I mean, jail's not a nice place. This one in particular, they were about to tear down. So you can imagine it's not, a, not a great jail. Nobody in there spoke English. It was the INS jail. So what you know, about your addiction? Were you doing okay with that? I was doing okay. Yeah. I was probably in about day eight or nine, I think. And I was doing okay, but I still couldn't sleep very well. And, you know, with everything that was on my mind, you know, I, it just it contributed to a really weak state of mind in that um, not only was I was I physically exhausted from the process of of coming down, but I was also mentally tired because I couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. So the next day they came and they um, they took me to King County Jail, which, uh, you know, most major city jails in the United States are not nice places. And Seattle's is no exception to that rule. And the first, uh, I, that was on a uh, on a Friday. I think I turned myself in on a Thursday, and then this was a Friday. They took me to King County Jail, and so I wouldn't be going to court until Monday. So I, I wasn't going to be classified. I guess is the thing, or processed, or you know, I'm still not clear on all the terms. I didn't pay a lot of attention, but so I wasn't going to see anybody till Monday. They weren't going to put me upstairs in an actual um, cell block until. Monday, so I had to spend the weekend in what amounts to the drunk tank, um, which drunks not so bad, but uh, you know there are heroin addicts in there that are literally kicking right then. There are other you know substance abusers that are kicking right there in front of you, so they are they are throwing up, they are pooping themselves. George They're, George breading, yeah, the term that's a are, proper term. They are George breading all over the place. They, they've George breaded all over the showers. Um, you know, there's, you're really not in the mood to eat anything if there was anything worth eating. So you, know, you, you, you are sort of getting more, you, you're getting weaker and more tired throughout this whole process. And a couple people came to see me that weekend, which was, which was nice, but you know, I was real emotionally raw at that point. So they probably saw a not so pretty picture mm -hmm. of me. Anybody that came to see me wanting to feel better about about my state of mind and, and what I was looking like probably didn't come away with a great impression. Yeah. So you you said that you told me previously that that when you met with your defense attorney, they just basically said, look, it's federal charge. There are sentencing guidelines and there's there's not any real wiggle room. So here's what you're going to get. So the trial itself was probably not for the victims and not for you emotionally. But in terms of your story, this, the trial kind of went along as as these trials do. Right. You find yourself sentenced to federal prison for between five and almost six years. And and uh, where did you um, where did you land? Where did they put you? 
it took uh, even when you turn yourself in and you say guilty, guilty, guilty. I did it. Just tell me what you want me to sign. I did it. Even when you want to do all that, even when you've laid it out, told them everything, it still took seven months to to become to get sentenced. So, and there was no trial. It was just me signing an agreement saying I did all these things. I was assigned to uh, FCI Sheridan in Sheridan, Oregon. It's Federal Correctional Institutional Sheridan. It was a, it's a uh, at the time it was a medium security federal prison. There's also a um, federal prison camp outside of Sheridan, outside the walls. Uh, I didn't use a gun. However, I implied I had a gun, which meant that I was a medium-high security inmate. So if you hadn't written, I have a gun on those notes, you would be a different classification. I could have gone to the camp, yes. And what's the difference between the camp and the... Camp is you're outside the walls. It's, you know, where Martha Stewart went. You know, that that type of thing. So that would have tremendously changed your life for five years. Right. I had to go to big boy jail. And I was was sentenced to um, FCI Sheridan. And after seven and a half months, it was sometime in April, they came to get me. They come get you uh, very early in the morning and they put you on the bus with some other inmates that are on their way to different places uh, along the line and then they start this journey where they take you as they pick up people you move from different little county jail or city jail you know on your way down there so i think i spent about a week in various jails i think one one night in buckley maybe one night in puyallup um a night in uh, uh pierce county and then a night in multnomah county in portland and then you know, finally, when they've really got you worn out, they they uh, they get you to your destination. I was uh, dropped off at Sheridan, and you spend your first few days at any prison in processing, and you spend it in um, the segregated housing unit or the SHU. So I was in, you Isn't know. Isn't that also where there are the people like you that are in the SHU because you're just entering, but then there's people that are over there because of... Lots of problems. Yeah, that's it's the hole you spend your first time in the hole, and you they'll throw somebody in with you who might be one of those inmates. It isn't always just another person processing in. It's just there's a bed there, so you can get thrown in with somebody who's been causing problems on the compound and now is in the hole. So I spent a few days there. It may have been closer to a week, and then was uh, that what's what's amazing about about this system is there are a million rules in federal prison, as you can imagine. There's no orientation. <laughs> they, give you, they, give you your, you, they give you your blanket, and they tell you where the laundry is and where to go get your clothes, and they, they open the door and they shove you out onto the compound. You don't know any of the rules about what unit you're supposed to go to, what, you know, what the count schedule is, where you're supposed to be. I mean, it's sort of up to you to figure it out, up to you to ask the right questions of the right people and having no idea who those right people might be or who the wrong people might be to ask. It was uh, looking back. That was the strangest thing about the whole experience is is just getting that boot out on the compound. And did you know where your cell was? I did not. In fact, when you first get out, you don't have a cell. Uh, At the time when I was at when at the time that I was at FCI Sheridan, there is a setup in the unit where there are two tiers and there's cells all around on those tiers. And then 
uh, in the middle, there's a place called the Flats, and that's where the others sleep who are waiting for a room or choose not to have a room. We even had a couple inmates like that who just, I guess, didn't want, you know, the claustrophobic feeling of having a, a cell. So everyone else sort of now you're in line, you got to go to the flats, but they don't tell you that. So when I walked into my unit, when I finally figured out where my unit was and I walked into my unit, I didn't know where am I sleeping? Uh, you know, there's, there was no guard on duty inside the unit at the time he was outside the unit. And so there was an inmate that took pity on me and, and said, well, if there's an open bed on the flats, Right over there, just go take that bed. And You're wearing a jumpsuit, I'm assuming. In the in the federal system, you wear uh, khaki pants and a khaki um, khaki oh. shirt, so uh, classy, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I find my bed, and then I've got these. They give you these uh, boots, these heavy boots, and these socks that are made of fiberglass. <laughs> And, you know, within like the first couple hours, my feet are starting to, to rot off, which they have a tendency to do anyway, but they're really rotting off with these, with these fiberglass socks. And, and the same inmate, his name was, uh, David. I was really lucky that this was a nice guy and a, and a good guy because, you know, when you meet someone for the first time in there, you, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. He they might be, be the prison equivalent of a first day friend. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you started a new high school and they seem awesome. But then later in the school, you're like, I can't believe it, but I was friends with them. Right. But in prison, who knows how bad that could actually yeah, be. Yeah, it could turn out really poorly. But but he, he gave me some, some toiletries. He gave me a couple pairs of socks to borrow until the first time I could go to commissary and buy some decent socks. And, you know, sort of took pity on me and told me a few of the little rules and, you know, why I'm sleeping in the flats and all, all the stuff that the guards and the administrators, they don't, you'd think there'd be a brochure or something that says, hey, now you're in prison. Something laminated. <laughs> well, actually, no, there is a guy named Jim Hogshire who wrote a, a, a book called You're Going to Prison. Uh-huh. Uh, a few, maybe, that was a long time ago now, five, six I've years ago. I've heard of ago. it, yeah. But it was, it, you know, it seemed like a joke at the time, but maybe it's not a joke. No, it's absolutely, uh, would be a great handbook to have. And, and I almost got thrown in, in the hole my first day because of not knowing the rules, they have several counts a day, and one is a really important count. It's at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's the stand-up count. And that's where everyone in their cells has to stand up, and everyone in the flats has to stand up next to their bunks, and they count. Well, I was uh, watching SportsCenter, I think, in the in one of the TV rooms, and they were calling count. And all these there were three or four other guys in the TV room, and they walked out, and I didn't know. I'm still So I'm sitting in there. I got my feet up. Watching Sports Center, I'm like, "Hey, I get to watch Sports Center. I didn't even have cable at King County Jail. This is awesome." And my my stay on the compound almost came to an abrupt end. Is this? Uh, it was the the guy's name, officer's name was Buckles, which I thought was like belt buckles, but I found out later it's buckholes. Oh, know? yeah. But I thought they called him Buckles because he was like some <laughs> yeah clown or something. Right. But anyway, this guy <laughs> he busts into the TV room and, and starts screaming at me, "What the hell are you doing?" You know. So I'm watching Sports Center. What do you, th- you know, what does it look like, right? I don't know. And he says, "This is stand up count. You need to get by your bunk." I'm, you know, and then so I go out to my bunk. I stand by my bunk, and he comes over afterwards and and tells me that uh, he should take me to the hole. And you know, I I, I was flabbergasted. I'm like, I have so much to learn about this process. Obviously, please have some some pity on me. This is my first day, 
in federal prison. I didn't say any of this. Of course, I stood there, yes, sir, no, sir. But it's um, this most shocking thing about the whole process of going to prison is no one tells you how it's going to work. Is there, I mean, you were in one place, so obviously you can't speak um, to the the whole you know federal prison system, but like, is it as violent and scary a place when you're actually there as all of us who've never been there imagine it would be? I got there just a couple months after they'd had a major riot, and how how you could tell that uh, that there'd been a riot was uh, some of the buildings had wood roof, and some of them had metal roofs, and the ones with the metal roofs were the ones that were set on fire a few months before, so you could tell where where on the compound the riot was going on, and wow. and there were officers that were hurt, and there were inmates that were hurt real bad, and I think that I think a couple of people died, but I'm not exactly sure. I I was not able to do a lot of research on it and didn't really want to know because mm-hmm. you come on to, you come to prison start asking a lot of questions especially if you're a clean-cut guy who you know seems educated you ask a lot of questions that's not a good way to start out the day right i mean are do you, did you feel in danger a lot of the time I, I feel like i would maybe never go to sleep if i went to jail because of feeling like someone was going to rape me mm-hmm. or somebody was going to just stick a knife in me or I was going to make someone angry because I asked for more Splenda <laughs> or less Splenda. I mean, every aspect of it would just scare the crap out of me. I would think any Splenda-related request yeah. should lead to some Yeah, you fear. actually support that. <laughs> no, but I mean, did you feel – Did you were you just scared for your safety a lot of the time? After the first few days, I wasn't very often scared for my safety, although there was a lot of violence. Uh, there there were killings while I was there. Um, but they, the people that were killed and, and the violence that happened usually involved some sort of activity that I wasn't involved in. You right. know, there were there was a lot there were a lot of drugs involved or, you know, somebody, you know, there was some some sexual activity that somebody had done with somebody's somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stuff that I was not participating in. So I didn't feel like I was going to get caught in that. So it was it does seem possible, in, at least in your experience, that you can you can sort of avoid that that craziness. You can kind of keep your nose clean. You can kind of do your time and get out of there. It's not like you will necessarily have to, by definition, be a part of all kinds of no, kind of there's scariness. the way I look at it. There's two. There's two ways you can go about doing your time, and and different guys got through it different ways. One way is to completely withdraw and just and just do your time, keep your head down, and not get involved in anything at all. I chose a different way. I actually had a really great time in prison. I took part in all kinds of things, all sports, all activities. I took I took part in everything, and it's it really passed my day really quickly. Um, it was. Uh, I I found that that was the the way to get through it. I had a pretty high profile. But you weren't worried that that was somehow going to run afoul of of other people. Like if you're on the softball team or the the basketball team, and and you just dominant, you're just posting this guy from the Crips up over and over and over again. Doesn't that guy want to just kill you later because you embarrassed him at basketball? I did get in some altercations on the basketball court. Yes, but I picked a really good hypothetical. <laughs> Uh, one time I got, I did get sucker punched and, and got hurt, uh, significantly had to get some stitches. And then another time, you know, some violence almost escalated, but that, that, that's the kind of thing that happened to me when, when I was playing at Greenland. Right. Right. So it wasn't foreign to me. I guess it didn't, it didn't really dawn on me that maybe they might just say, okay, that's fine. And then later I'm going to pay for it. But 
But uh, I chose to just dive in and participate. I was ready to start a new life and, and to do something. I didn't want to just sit there and be a, a mouse mm-hmm. in prison. We've got to take a break for the news here, but when we come back, we'll have more um, uh, questions about his time uh, inside uh, and also the incredibly essential role that being able to urinate on cue plays in maintaining friendships. All this week in the 9 o'clock hour of the show, we've been talking to uh, Mike Frizzell. Um, He's a uh, gainfully employed, in fact, highly respected manager at a a company that uh, owns a bunch of restaurants in town. But... um, uh, a long time ago, well, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, he, he ran into a bit of a, a rough patch, uh, which would be his time um, as a bank robber and then uh, in a federal prison in Oregon. And then did you come later to Washington towards the end of it or was it I all did. in Oregon? No, I did. They opened uh, Federal Detention Center, SeaTac with about nine months left in my sentence. And they asked for volunteers from FCI Sheridan, and nobody volunteered because it's a high-rise, you know, county jail-type situation. Oh, I see. It's not like one of these low-slung ones with, like, workout areas and basketball courts no, and stuff. No, it's a, it's a high-rise, and, and it's a miserable place to be. So they asked for volunteers. And, and some guys volunteered because they had they wanted to have more visits with their family and all that. And I wasn't really into a lot of visits in prison. It wasn't my idea of a great great time for for my family yeah. to come in so interesting that they ask for volunteers yeah <laughs> you know what i mean it seems like you're in jail they would be or you're in prison they would say well they did you're, that you're going they did that too <laughs> yeah then then when the bus actually pulled up then i was on that bus i see i see well um uh, uh, mike spent um five years all together in uh in in federal custody and i was surprised before the break you said that you had a great you had a, a pretty decent time because you just got one, you were off drugs, mm-hmm. right? So you just like emotionally must have been uh, doing a lot better. And then also, was it the sense that did you just feel like your real life, even though you were in prison, your real life was starting? Your life of not being on drugs, your life of not having this horrible secret. I and mean, you were paying restitution and you were about to move forward, right? I'm not ashamed to say it. I had I had a pretty great time in prison. That's what I get for trying to <laughs> not, find the nuance in Not it. so much in King County Jail, but when once I got to an actual prison and you can set up your your life and your day um and you can fill your day with at least enough activities and and positive type routine that you feel like you you can make strides. I I did a lot of writing uh when I was in prison, not not uh not not fiction, but I I wrote a lot of letters. I read 500 or 700 books. I lost count at some point. So I read all kinds of things that I'd always meant to read, all kinds of things that I always told people I'd read, told different professors and teachers that I'd read. And and I just felt like I was being reborn as a person. And I enjoyed that time. And I, um, it, it, it is a safe environment in which to reinvent yourself, too. You, there are not a lot of... Um, personal setbacks because when you're working on your program in prison, people kind of respect that. You're working your program. I'm working my program. If we stay out of each other's way, that's a good that's a good thing. I needed the structure, too. I don't want this to, to turn into some kind of, uh, you know, uh, discussion on, like, federal prison policies. But, you know, the recidivism rate is really high. Mm-hmm. Uh, most guys that get out end up back in there, and there's always stories about all kinds of terribleness that happens in there. Do you feel like that's that's not accurate based on your experience? Well, the recidivism is high, but it's it's basically high because recidivism is high for 
any criminal. It's not just the feds. It's for right, state right. charges, all that. It's people are not preparing themselves for a life outside of prison. A lot of a lot of people, when they get in, they they get into a routine that's comfortable, but is only comfortable for for prison. They they're not able to take that and translate it into anything outside. And also, they they've taken away program after program, and and they do nothing but try to continue to punish instead of rehabilitate. So, what you end up with is people that aren't prepared to become. You know, contributing members of society, they're just not prepared. And when you come out and you feel like you're failing, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to you're going to do what you were good at, which is crime. You're arbitrarily paired up with your cellmate, right? They just throw people in together. When you you come out of the communal area, the flats where you you live, if you've lost your room or if you don't have one yet because you just got there, and then you just go into a room and it's like. A uh, high person I live with now. Mm -hmm. Is that how it happens? That is how it usually happens. There can be some juggling that goes on when uh, one one of my cellmates went to the hole. He he had a dirty for heroin, and um, instead of taking a guy from the flats, I coaxed a guy from another cell to come move in with me, and then the guy from the flats moved in with the other guy. Was the other guy mad? <laughs> The guy who lost his presumably uh, nice roommate because you wanted his it. roommate yeah. got got somebody from the you know riffraff. Oh yes, and and that particular guy that we screwed over in that deal is the Sudafed killer. Oh, oh my wow. word! Mm -hmm. Well, he kind of had it coming. I don't want to make light, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. So I stole his uh, I stole his cellmate. And I don't think he's ever forgiven me for that. Was that the guy? I take Tylenol. By the way. <laughs> was that the guy who? Um, uh, you were really good friends and continue to be really good friends with one of the person that was your cellmate for years and years, right? Yeah, my friend Jeff. Was that the guy who you stole? Yeah, I stole Jeff. Uh, there was a, you know, I just knew from hanging out with them that we'd be good cellmates. And, and you know, when my cellmate went to went to the hole, I went and talked to him. And it was tough talking him into it because this guy, the Sudafed killer, took pretty good care of him. You know, just, and not not anything funny, but, but uh, you know, he he knew that he was lucky to have a good cellmate. So... You know, he was he, they were pretty he was pretty good to him. Now, what's the story of when you almost lost Jeff, apparently the most popular celly <laughs> in federal prison because everyone's fighting over him. Yeah. What, how did you almost lose him? Well, uh, Jeff and I had pretty sweet gigs. Uh, he was a clerk at the uh, for the, the company that did or the um, the section that did maintenance around the, the prison, he was their clerk, and I was the clerk for our unit. So we both had access to typewriters, which allowed us to do a lot of uh, not only our legitimate jobs, but allowed us to do a lot of uh, stuff like print uh, print the originals for the gambling tickets that are distributed, which is a quick way to make money. Um, also type a lot of legal work, and we both had access to copiers, which allowed us to make a lot of copies for other inmates. So we both had really, really good jobs, and these were highly sought-after positions because you can make a lot of money through your quote-unquote hustle by having these positions. So what happened was Jeff and I were la-la-la, very happy in our life together in our cell. You were heading for Massachusetts, <laughs> I presume, when you both got out. <laughs> No, Jeff would be awful mad. I would <laughs> tread tread carefully there, Luke. All right. Um, we we were very happy, and uh, but but people were jealous of our positions, and you know these these are positions that 
they wouldn't mind us seeing us go to the hole so that they could get these cool jobs, these jobs. Yeah. And get access to these typewriters and all this equipment. Well, Jeff, there was no drugs in, in Jeff's case ever. He never used drugs. Um, and of course there, there were drugs in my case, but I didn't talk a lot about my case. So I don't even know if the person who tipped the prison authorities that we were using drugs in our cell, uh, had any idea, but they, uh, I guess they were just taking a stab in the dark. And one day we heard an announcement that we had to go to the visiting room, which is where you went during weekdays, weekday afternoons to take your, your UA, your, your P test. Mm -hmm. And being, having drugs in my background, I was used to taking the, the P tests and, and I, you know, up until I got through with probation, I was taking dozens and dozens and dozens of them. So it doesn't bother me. I don't have any problems with the, uh, with peeing in front of somebody mm -hmm. and, and the setup that they have though can be pretty nerve wracking if someone has any bladder shyness at all, because what it is, is you walk in to this, uh, bathroom and there's someone watching you and there's mirrors all around the toilet. <laughs> so they actually watch yeah. you pee. There's no, there's, so there's no trickery, right? There's no, you know, using someone else's stuff, right? Kind of thing. And Jeff, Shy bladder, but he'd never had to take these tests because he didn't have drugs in his case. So this is the first time he'd ever been called for a pee test. And we were, we'd been out in the yard playing basketball all afternoon. So we were pretty dehydrated. And it took me even probably half hour, 45 minutes to even come up with enough in the cup because you have to get it to a certain level. It took me that, that long just to get it. And, and I was thinking, because Jeff had told me this before that he might have trouble. And he was in there. And if you're in there for more than, I think, three hours, it's a dirty and you go to the hole. It's automatic dirty because they figure you're not going to pee for them. There's a reason you're not peeing for them. Everyone's got to pee within three hours. Come yeah. on. So I had to go back to our cell for the four o'clock stand-up count with Jeff still up at the visiting room, you know, and not knowing if I was going to lose my celly, who now, you know, we were, we were bros. How long had you guys been cellmates? At this point, uh, we'd been cellmates pro probably a couple of years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, I mean, we were really tight, and I was convinced he wasn't going to go to the hole because he he was just drinking water, drinking water, and it's just nothing happening for him. But and if he goes to the hole, then somebody else from the flats comes up and is your new roommate, right? Unless I can work a very quick deal, which is what you got to do. You got to find someone really, really fast. That you don't mind, and then you got to convince them to come up, and then you got to be convinced that their 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 celly won't try to kill you right. for stealing them. So uh, he showed up. Uh, he showed up at about four forty-five, and to a hero's welcome for me. <laughs> he, he did it. He 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 managed to. He managed micturate. to get it past the line. He managed to micturate to the point where uh, they were they were going to be satisfied. And of course, he was clean, and I was clean, and we lived happily ever after. But <laughs> but if you're out there, whoever whoever. Drop that note on us. <laughs> I better not find out. You you said that you actually had a good time in there in in federal prison. Are you worried that that sends a weird message? It sounds like you know you aren't sorry for the for the bank robberies and the stuff. You know, because it sounds like for you it was very therapeutic actually. Well, I would think that even if even if someone was hurt by what I did, they would want me to put my life together and be a productive member of society. I mean, it, it probably does sound flip to say I had a good time or a great time in federal prison, but what I really mean by that is I got a lot accomplished. I put my life together. I was able to 
pull things together enough to become a member of society again. So I, I, I choose to see it as a, as a real positive. Um, did you, uh, you, you told me a story one time when we were having lunch about a softball game where there was, cause they, you know, the joke is everybody's innocent in prison. And I guess, I don't know what the conversations are that go on in there, but, but if they are about guilt or innocence, most people are probably fairly tight lipped about it. But there mm-hmm. was a guy, was his name Doc? Yeah, the, it was a famous case. Uh, the book was called Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis, I think is the, the gentleman's name. And it was about uh, Captain Jeffrey McDonald. Oh, and I saw the miniseries. It was, yeah, there was a dramatic miniseries on NBC, I believe. And very famous case of a doctor. I think he was on a military base. He was a Green Beret and, and he was on a military base in North Carolina. And the facts of the case as... You know, as it turned out, uh, were that he had uh, his he he was a little bit unbalanced, and his uh, youngest daughter had wet the bed, and he went uh, he went absolutely berserk, and he killed both his daughters and his wife, and he he tried to blame he tried to blame some hippies that had broken into the house. It's like kind of like a helter skelter mm-hmm. thing, and the the authorities didn't believe him, and and the the evidence in the trial turned out that, you know, he ended up being convicted and he was, um, he's actually, uh, I don't know whether he was innocent or not, but, but he's a very nice gentleman to me. And I played in, in a softball league in what was called the a league. And then myself and Jeff, we coached a B league softball team and, uh, doc, as they called him, uh, was our first baseman. And he was he was a good fielder, good hitter, and he was a good guy to have on the team. Everyone knows knows the facts of his case, though everybody does. And and there there were crowds, always big crowds at the softball games. There's not a whole lot else to do in the afternoon after dinner, but to go watch the softball games. And most people bet on it, and you know it was a it was a big activity. So we were coaching a game uh, one day. Our our team was uh, like half white, half Mexican, and we were playing against one of the other um, fully ethnic teams, but it's not really that material. But somebody, Doc Doc came up to bat, and somebody in the crowd uh, yelled, why, why don't you smash the ball like you smashed your little girls? Oh, my God. And not, I mean, we're we're outdoors, it's windy or whatever, but pin drop, seriously, you could hear a pin drop. Um, like even by prison trash talking standards, whatever that was, everyone was like, you don't say that. Sure. I mean, trash talk. I mean, everyone like likes a good trash talk. My, my buddy Jeff's a heavier fella, you know, and when, when he'd miss a ground ball at first base, they'd yell out, you know, if it had been a cheeseburger, you would have caught it, you know, things like that. Everybody likes a good trash talk, but this guy went over the line and, uh, doc just looked up and he started started walking towards the crowd and he's still holding the bat and he had a look in his eyes that was just complete insanity you know we we stopped him before he got there but i i'm convinced if they just let him go he would have he would have killed that guy did you continue on with the season doc is your first baseman yeah oh yeah is it hard to do you have to do some kind of tricky um mental gymnastics when you're friends with a bunch of people who who have been convicted of a lot of them doing really terrible stuff, 
but they're a nice person to you. They're not behaving mm-hmm. that way. And so, you know, is it hard? Do you have to make a decision that you were just going to leave what happened outside the prison outside the prison? Yeah, I think uh, you just disconnect the that particular behavior from, you know, what you know of them and their their daily behavior. I mean, let you know, if you have a child that that does something n- naughty, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, oh, he's a good kid. He just did a bad mm-hmm. thing. But these are just bad things that are on a much larger scale, you know. Right, right. That Carl Malden plays his right father-in-law on the uh, NBC miniseries. Precisely. Right? What um, when you got towards the end of your time, did you actually? I mean, were you just incredibly eager to get out of prison and get on with your life, or was there uh, a part of you that was had become comfortable and knowing all the rules and knowing that you kind of couldn't mess up mm-hmm. so much because there was so much structure? I was really scared because I, I hadn't dealt, you know, really sober with life since I was a junior in college. So I was terrified. And I, I think I was more scared the day I walked into my job. I had an $8 an hour job set up for when I got out. And and I was more scared walking into that elevator at that office building than I was when I walked into the police station in Bellevue. Wow. How did it go? Like, you know, that first day. I mean, did you did it take you a while to acclimate? It did. I the people at that job were so incredibly nice. And I had just come from a place where that's just not the norm. Uh it felt fake to me. There there were it was a few days before I just felt like, no, I guess they're nice. <laughs> and not just acting nice. You know, because when 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 you're in prison and someone's really nice to you, that's, you know, usually you have to be suspicious of that. And I'd done enough time at that point to where I was suspicious, especially when person after person is really nice. You just feel like you're being set up for something. Well, I'm I'm happy to report to everyone. You would probably deduce it. Uh, from the fact that we actually have Mike on the show here and that we're friends with him, that uh, you've had quite a successful life on the outside. And, and in fact, it's it's been such a success that you feel comfortable now, or at least somewhat comfortable, talking about this stuff because you think that it's no longer the defining. Is is that, I mean, am I... Right. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, but. I I think that uh, it... I had to take long enough and I had to do enough in my life to where that wasn't defining me anymore. I am a different person now. And I can talk about it uh, as that that was me, but that's not me anymore. Well, um, I just want uh, – I'll probably say this again tomorrow night when we have you on, but I just want to really thank you for um, for coming on here and talking about this stuff. And it's – you know, the, there are people that work under you, right, who aren't totally familiar with this part of your life. Yes. So I guess, you know – Maybe they'll bring it up or maybe they'll just – you're their boss, so I guess there's there's only a certain amount of <laughs> probing that they can do. But, I mean, you know, this is obviously an incredibly personal, incredibly vulnerable thing for you to do. Um, so thank you very much for coming on and, and talking about it with us. Well, you're welcome. You guys were great. Today we have a very special guest, as Mike mentioned, Big Country. Um, but first, as always, the award-winning segment, Christy Has Questions. <laughs> Christy always <laughs> has questions. Always. <laughs> Oh, right. So you mentioned that it took you seven months to get sentenced um, Mm -hmm. from when you turned yourself in 
to the sentencing. Where were where were you during that time? Uh, well, as I mentioned in the clip, uh, there was one night in the immigration jail, and then they got me into King County Jail. Um, later, toward the end of my sentence, they opened up a, um, a federal holding facility, FDC SeaTac, near the airport. Uh, but at the time when I was being sentenced, federal inmates had to go to King County Jail, and there were two um, what what are called tanks uh, where the federal inmates were held. And I spent those seven months in uh, East Nine Upper Sea of King County Jail, the uh, the ninth floor on the upper side. And it was, there were a few state inmates who caused a lot of problems um, because, I don't know, it was just a different class of inmate. We looked down on those guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if that's the difference between uh, your life at Sheridan and the King County, if that's more of what people think of as prison, the King County. Yeah, yeah, it was rough, and there were a lot of fights all the time, um, and they would get you up. You had to get out of your cell and go eat a terrible breakfast at 6 a.m. They would pop the cells, and you, you'd you be required to go out, and really the only thing, um, the the only breakfast that I liked was the shit on a shingle. The other breakfasts were terrible. Uh, usually the only thing I would do is drink the milk. They'd give you, you know, that little child size portion of yeah. milk, you know, like a 220 pound individual it's like a and, to a tablespoon of milk. Yeah. And you get like the first grader size of milk. <laughs> uh, so, um, I spent seven months there and the most notable thing in there was where there were a couple things. The first thing was you would always be trying to get extra clothes because you'd get this jumpsuit, not a jumpsuit. I'm sorry. There were, it was like, they were like really heavy pajamas. Um, and when the laundry uh, cart would come, everyone would have to strip naked and turn in all your clothes. You would go to the front of the, uh, of the uh, holding tank and they'd open it and the guy would come with the cart and you would pass your clothes and they would give you a new set of clothes. So you would try to pass some of your clothes and get back an entire outfit. And the reason you want to do that is because you're exercising every day. Uh, and, and you know, the laundry comes weekly. You're exercising every day. Plus, you want to get enough stuff to, like, make a pillow. Right. Because they didn't give you pillows. So, you know, you're, you're standing there naked. You're trying to pull a fast one. I mean, even if you're an... You know, you're trying to turn into an honest dude or whatever. Prison kind of makes a, a liar out of you, you know. It's like, I'm trying to get this extra stuff. And so, you know, you, you, would, you would get some some extra stuff and, and make yourself a, a nice, nice pillow. And uh, the exercise thing, you know, leading into that, uh, we would get an hour in the quote-unquote yard every day. And the yard was just um, an, uh, an area that had uh, – a concrete opening about 15 feet up, you know, there's wire over it, but it was, it was open air. So, you know, if it was cold outside, it's cold in there. If it's warm outside, it was warm in there. So, uh, we would play basketball out there. There was like a pull-up bar and a basketball hoop. And that was pretty much it. Thank God smoking wasn't allowed. So, 
uh, we would go out there and, and we'd play basketball, but all you had for footwear was jellies. Uh oh. So uh, we just, most of us opted to play without the jellies. And in fact, if people played with the jellies, you told them to take that shit off because they would step on your feet with their jellies. <laughs> so you would the, play basketball on this, on cement with bare feet? In, no, in socks. Okay. Okay. We that's were, much better. <laughs> we were playing socks. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I still attribute some of my foot problems to this oh, day to sure. playing seven months of basketball in socks because I played every day. And the worst thing that happened to me in King County jail was I, it wasn't a fight, but, um, I got hit. I was playing basketball with a guy who I would later, um, go to Sheridan with and become friends with. His name was Tony. He's a, um, big guy, like bigger than me. I'm, I was six two, two twenty at the time. And he was probably six, three, six, four, probably two forty, And, we would play basketball every day and he was in the other tank, the other fed tank. And we would play our tank against theirs. And I was a little bit better at basketball than him. Not a lot better, but a little bit better. And I, you know, I would consistently get the better of him and we would usually win and it, it irritated him. And one day he called a, he called traveling on me. I I was up at the top of the key and I made some fake and he fell for it. And then I blew by him and, and made a layup and he called, he, he just yelled out walk. He yelled out oh. walk. <laughs> and, and I said, I said, really? All right. And then I just, I, I, I just, I didn't hand him the basketball. I like put it in his belly, you know, like a handoff. Yeah. And started walking away, and he uh, he hit me really hard uh, from behind. But his it's like he swung his fist around my head, and his um, wristband. We when you go into county jail, you get these um, wristbands that they put on with these like rivets. So and they're two like two metal rivets that put on your wristband, and his rivets just sliced open. Uh, part of my face. So I'm bleeding everywhere. Well, first of all, I went halfway down, you know, I didn't get completely knocked out, but I was seeing stars and I went down to my knee and I, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, I had to go to the guards and say, I need to, you know, get, get medical attention. Mm -hmm. And they were asking, you know, what happened? What happened? I said, well, uh, I was going for a loose ball and I, you know, ran into the wall or whatever, you know, cause I'm not going right. to tell on this guy. <laughs> right. right. Cause it can only get worse now. Right. Cause he's <laughs> so, uh, they, I'm sure they didn't believe me because they get this shit all the time, but <laughs> you know, they, there was no camera on it, so they didn't see it. So I got stitches, uh, in my, uh, upper, I think it's upper lip left side, about four or five stitches. Oh and wow! That was, he got you good. Yeah, he got me. He got me real good. It was—I mean, he's a big, powerful guy, and and we talked about it later when we were at Sheridan, and it was it was pretty funny. But uh, I'm kind of an asshole when it comes to competitive sports, and so <laughs> you know, I feel like I had it coming. But um, and the punch would have been fine. It was the cut that was the problem because I could have just walked back. You know, once right. I <laughs> regained full consciousness, <laughs> I could have gone back to my cell and it would have been fine. But the cut created a problem, which I covered up and he was fine with that. And, and we were not like 
besties because we were never in the same unit or whatever at Sheridan, but we competed a lot later on and, uh, and we, you know, he was fine with it. And I never pulled an asshole move like that. Like, you know, tell him, well, you know, your call was bullshit and then shove the ball into his, <laughs> that's, that's not a move you should, it's not a move you should make anywhere. Anywhere. Right. <laughs> but you definitely shouldn't do it in prison because you don't know who you're dealing with. Right. <laughs> you don't know what he's so, in for. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was my seven months. Most of the problems were not between fed inmates it was usually between a state guy and a fed guy or between the state guys there were a lot of fights especially like early in the morning when you had to go out for that breakfast everyone was pissed off and if anyone said a crossword then you know trays were flying and uh fists wow. were flying and then you had to go back to yourself yeah so that's definitely different than your camp life <laughs> oh no i never went to camp i never I never went to any prison. I'm just camp. saying that that's what Sheridan seems like compared to. Oh, that. oh, God, you didn't yeah, go Sheridan to an official was camp. <laughs> Sheridan was so much better, and the guards at Sheridan were more accountable because uh, you're going to be spending years there, so they would they wouldn't fuck with inmates yeah. as much as they did in county jail. Like uh, when they tossed your cell in county, what they would do is like if you had a book that you had a bookmark in, you know, those clearly the one you were reading, mm-hmm. they would take it. Oh, just to you, be a jerk. Right. And oh. if there was a game that was playing, like people were playing Scrabble or some other board game or something out on the tables and they would toss the, the unit or the 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 block, uh, they would take a couple of the game pieces oh. and leave the rest. Yeah. So the, the hacks at, uh, at King County uh, were way bigger jerks just because they could be because they, you know, because the ones at Sheridan, if they were assholes, there were ways for inmates to get back at them. Right. But not, not a county. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you mentioned that you read all the books that you had lied about for years that you had actually <laughs> right. read. <laughs> right. My mom is an English teacher. So I was, I think there was some expectation that I had read all kinds of, I mean, she, she was, a um, she taught honors English. So Shakespeare, uh, and all that stuff. And there was some expectation that I had already read all that stuff. Yeah. And I had not. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have a list of all the books you that you read? I do. And I think I, it's possible I could unearth that. Oh, I think I great. put it um, in, in some, I think I put it up in some chat that we were involved in at some point, but I'm, I may be able to recover that and put it up. Oh yeah, that would be great. There's a lot of junk on there too. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. I didn't, I didn't omit all the crap, you know, <laughs> that I also read like a, a is for alibi, you know, who I forget oh, who that yeah, yeah. lady was, but I read all that bullshit too. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you're a captive audience, right? Oh, fuck yeah. Nothing if I could get hold of anything, you know, anything good or anything even close to good. Okay. So you mentioned that when you first got there, someone gave you better socks over the fiberglass that you're issued mm-hmm. and some um, toiletries. I'm wondering, is this a common practice to to pay it forward? Uh, well, I want to say, I, I mean, I wish I could say that I was a saint and and you know, it was like Kevin Spacey and paid it forward. <laughs> uh, who is it? Haley Joel Osment? He was yes. in that movie yep. as well. I wish I could say that I did that um, with, with a pure heart. I did it, Christy, but I, it was not as much with a pure heart. Uh, once I got in there and was established as a, as a human being in prison, I was 
coach and a competitor in a lot of sports. And my friend, Skipper Naramore, uh, whom I played a lot of backgammon with, and he, he was a great kid. And he was even more passionate about playing prison sports than I was. And he always kept an eye on who was getting out of the hole, who was hitting the compound. Mm-hmm. And he would look for anyone who looked athletic. Oh, looked recruitment. Like they could, yes. Oh. And he would he would sidle up to these guys when they were on their way to, to get their laundry, to get their uniforms and their bedding and all that, and just kind of quiz them on what their athletic skills, accomplishments, <laughs> uh, level of expertise in anything. And if they were deemed worthy of either being on the B-League teams that we coached or especially the A-League teams that we played on, then we would help a brother out. (laughs) So yes, yes, I did pay it forward, but it was not, it was not like a, I don't know, angelic operation. Okay. No, no, it was recruitment. Everyone's got to have their hustle, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I like to think, well, we help some guys out and just leave it at that. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't help some other guys out. At least maybe at least maybe Skipper gave them some information like, you know, hey, you need to not be in the TV room at four o'clock. You need to be by your bunk. You know, Wait, what happened Skip- at four o'clock in the TV room? Uh, well, that was when I got the first day I was there. I was watching ESPN and uh, it's it's stand up count time. And I didn't know. So I wasn't standing by my bunk and I got in big trouble. You're so. looking around. These idiots don't know this game's on. Yes. Yeah, this is uh, it's amazing. <laughs> you guys have ESPN here. I mean, this is I'm going to camp out here if you don't mind. Okay, so let's pause and get Brian on the line and then you can introduce him. Okay. You want to do that? Okay. All right, joining us now on uh, night four of this journey, or week four, as we should say, uh, recapping the interview from 2009, is my friend from my time in FCI Sheridan, uh, Brian Big Country McCall. Is it all right if I use your name, Brian? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're we're out here now. I mean, we've established ourselves. Um, Brian... Uh, the reason that I wanted to have him on is because my, my Sally Jeff, he's a little prickly. Uh, and also, I don't think his wife uh, much wanted him to uh, be out there. But Brian is a lot more open about the time that he did. And uh, one of the reasons I really like Big Country uh, is because he's very open. And he told us everything when he got to Sheridan. And um I got to be real good friends with him, and I like him even despite the fact that he is both a New England Patriots fan oh. and an Oregon Ducks fan. <laughs> I mean, I got to really like a guy. Yeah, you overlooked and a lot, Mike. I'm overlooking a lot. Uh, Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Uh, Christy, you. You came to me with this idea that we were going to recap all these interviews. And yeah, I definitely wanted Bing Country on because we we shared a lot in there. And he has his own story as well, his own journey 
to share. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mine's so a little you different. Take it from here. So. Okay. So first, I'd like to say. So um, we have Brian Big Country. Thanks for coming on. And was that a was that your nickname growing up, or was that a prison issued? That was uh, a kid from South Central named Chico. He was a kid. He was probably about our age. He hung that on me like from day one when he saw me when I got there, <laughs> when I was living on the flats. And Mike, what was your prison nickname? Uh, I don't. Did I have a nickname? I don't think you really ever had one. Just I mean, Frizz. Frizz. Okay. Frizz was basically it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if it was something where everyone gets one. Well, um, Brian, was it big country because you were a big guy and you were from the country or more or less like Salem, Oregon? I, I, or no, I really big, don't know. Or, because at the time... I just don't know. At the time, there was a, um, a highly drafted center for the Vancouver Grizzlies, who are now the Memphis Grizzlies, <laughs> named um, Bryant Reeves, who was nicknamed Big Country. And... You know, you don't like look look like him in the face or whatever, but you were, you were a big, you are a big man, um, and and I, I don't know. I mean, I watch a lot of basketball, so that's when they were calling you Big Country. I was like, oh, they're calling him that. But if it was Chico that gave it to you, then maybe he was just like, this is a, just a Big Country kid big. right here. Well, yeah, if you remember, I got there. Oh, it was in the fall. And they already had the intramural basketball leagues going, and Chico was was coaching one of the lower teams, lower leagues, mm-hmm. and he needed a player. So he, he saw me out there and kind of drafted me on his team. I mean, I was playing basketball for him almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. That, Not would, that would I was you, any good. I, I was just talking um, before the, the clip about how uh, Skipper would – uh, get guys coming out of the <laughs> hole and just sidle up to them and try to assess their uh, their athletic skill and try to place them within sort of our organization. <laughs> there so, you go. So it was it was definitely a thing when you get when you would jump out a shoe that um, guys would try to assess and put you into you know whatever program they're running. So I'm not surprised. I never you... came out of the shoe. Oh, you went I never straight did in. Any t- I went straight in. I never spent any time in shoe. I, I came in on the bus or the van, actually, out of, out of the airport there. Yeah. And uh, they just did a quick interview process. There was, I don't know if you remember, where Kit, there was a black guy that came in the same time as me that was like one of those uh, black uh, Jews, you know, Ethiopian Jew types. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Big thing that was going on back then. But I kind of overheard him talking to somebody else saying, Tell them that you want to get in the non-smoking unit. Yeah. So I kind of followed suit. I said, "Hey, I'm not. I'm a non-smoker. Put me in, in unit four. And yeah, there was only one in- non-smoking unit out of the out of the four. So yeah, so we were in four B. But how did you guys know it was non-smoking? How did you know to ask for four? I did. I overheard that guy talking about it. That's how I knew. Oh, okay. So it's all like you hear rumors or someone gives you the intel. Yeah. I, I don't know if I lucked out or if at some point I was able to request it, but yeah, I, that would have been miserable to be in a smoking unit for me. I hate that shit. Yeah. Ugh. All right. So, well, I am an ex smoker and I was kind of smoking at the time, but I just heard that life was easier over in that unit. So that's why I tried to get there. 
Um, so let Brian, do you mind telling your your story of what landed you in Sheridan? Uh, well, <laughs> you can go into as much I'm, detail I'm, or I'm, not. I'm, I'm, well, I'm a, I'm a bank robber too. I robbed one bank as opposed to I don't know how many dozens Mike did, but uh, <laughs> on the record, it's thirty, right, Mike? Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. Thirty, yeah. So three dozen then. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was I was you know was I twenty-seven at the time, almost twenty-eight. I was going through a rough time. Didn't have any money. Traveling cross country. I was I was headed down to Florida from Oregon to go you know, just explore and visit family and stuff. And uh, I, when I left Oregon, I kind of had it in my head that I was going to do something like this. I don't know if I'm, I'm a little different than most bank robbers, as my quote test. Most of them are in there, they, they rob a bank because a drug addiction, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. I did it because I wanted money and I just wanted to do it and see if I could get away with it. Okay. It's kind of different. <laughs> But uh, it was a small town, Cody, Wyoming, on the uh, the east side of Yellowstone Park. Nothing had ever happened in that town since, like, <laughs> they said a train was robbed there in 1915 was the last time something <laughs> like that happened. So I, I was kind of a big deal. And that's basically it. I robbed the bank there, got away with cash, and then made it all the way down to Amarillo, Texas, and I thought I'd got away scot-free and they didn't know who I was or anything. But uh, I've kind of found out that they knew exactly who I was when I got down to Amarillo <laughs> and that brought my whole reality crashing down. How did they How did they track you? How did they know? Well, I got into that town on like a, a Friday. And I was actually, I stopped and was having pizza at Pizza Hut. And, oh, one of the old well, you know, red roof uh, pizzas yeah, where they put exactly. it up on a little just, on a little pedestal for you to eat the pizza. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a pizza. I think they were having like a buffet or something. I can't remember, okay, but I was yeah. having pizza and I was sitting in a booth. And you know me, I'm kind of outgoing and stuff. And I heard yep. there was this family, a husband and wife and kid, sitting there, and I heard them talking. And I, I kind of chirped in, and then I found out that they were from Oregon too originally, and they'd moved out there. They were actually meth heads, ex-meth heads, I guess, that had moved away mm-hmm. from the area to get away because they wanted a new start on life. So they invited me to stay at their house uh, for that weekend, which I did. Went over there and they fed me elk steak. We went up into Yellowstone Park a little bit and went shooting guns and stuff over the weekend to all kinds That's of crazy amazing. stuff. <laughs> but I made the mistake of giving them my uh, real name. Oh, I didn't know I was going to do right. this. But, you know, I was stupid, and I went ahead and did it anyway. My In my head, I didn't think that anything would come of that with on their point. Wait, I was even going to send let them me, some let me cash stop you to help for a them second. out. Um, All right, go ahead. When you stopped in Cody for the pizza, did you were you in, intending to rob the bank and then the stay the weekend no. with them and then followed through with no. them? Or did, okay. No, that kind of just after driving around that weekend, scoping out, I said, wow, this is a... An easy mark right here. I sure, scoped sure. It out it's a like, little bit. So. There's like two cops there. And, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah, I mean, they were a poor family living in a single wide mobile home and stuff in a mobile home park. You know, they, they didn't have much. I was going to send them some cash if they hadn't turned me in. But oh. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, they screwed up. Well, was there a reward? Was there what? A reward for turning you in? Uh, I don't know. No, because they did it almost immediately. 
Yeah. Uh, well, we better yeah, get into this story. Yeah, that stuff takes a while this, to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So. They're idiots. This did my computer just quit? Hold nope. on a second. Oh, it's still recording. Yeah. It's just the screen went into bubble mode there, you know. Uh we're fine. Anyway, so I robbed this bank using a fake bomb. Oh so man. that weekend man, I went to uh What yeah, was it? No, no, tell me what what did the fake bomb consist of? Or did you just say that you had a bomb you, and write yeah. a note? No, no, I I had a fake bomb. I went to Radio Shack and got a little Oh my god walkie-talkie thing. I went down to this art store that was like in the part of Old Town, Cody, downtown, and got a big chunk of gray, mo- or gray modeling clay. <laughs> oh, God. And, and I taped it up, made it look like a bomb. I mean, I mean, I was in the military, so I kind of know what stuff looks like, but yeah. average Joe doesn't know what C4 looks like. Right. So I put that in a brown paper bag, and when I come walking in that morning, I'm like, I set the brown paper bag up there, and Pulled the thing out and set it on the counter. You know, I'm pretty big, oh. so nobody behind me was seeing anything. And I told yeah. her, I said, you know, this yeah. is a bomb. And uh, I've got a friend outside that's monitoring the police radios and stuff. Oh, that's smart. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if I give the exact words, but the gist of it. I said, you know, put all the money in the bag. Uh, I don't want any dye packs in there. Or yes. Gonna, you know, if anything happens, he's going to touch off the bomb. Right. So she loads it up. She did. When I said die pack, she kind of looked at me stupid. So, you know, they had no reason to have die packs. (laughs) (laughs) They never even heard of that technology. (laughs) Exactly. So she stuffed all the money in the bag. I just scooped up the bag, turned around and walked out. And I had my car parked around another building. Yeah. So when I got my car and left, they didn't even see me leave or anything. They they thought Uh I was on foot in the neighborhood. Right. So when they put it out... And I guess there wasn't a school too far away, which I didn't know. Uh, they put it out on the radio and stuff, the local radio, and gave a description of me that I was loose on foot in the neighborhood. That kind of, I guess, scared the people I stayed with. So they, they called in almost immediately. Like, uh, yeah, it sounds like the guy that stayed with us this uh, weekend. Like they thought maybe come back into their house to camp out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know for, I don't know for sure because I've never talked to him since then, you know, but. Yeah, but yeah, people with, they had kids, right? Yeah, they had one kid. He was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12. So they were probably like, oh, well, we can't risk, you know. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, they didn't know. I mean, you know. Yeah. They didn't know I was a big teddy bear. They didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) They thought they knew, but then the bank robbery thing was dissonance for them. They're like, well, I thought this guy was cool, but he seems now (laughs) with this new information. Well, even in my head, when I was robbing a bank, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not, in my head, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just no, doing exactly. something here to get some money. I, right. You know, don't be afraid of me. I'm not going to hurt you, but they don't know that, you know? Right. Because right. that, yeah, that was my thing too, is I knew I was never going to hurt anybody. And if anybody ever pulled a gun on me or a cop ever showed up, I would have been lying on the floor, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. like, in the movie okay, version, it's all over. Uh, in the movie version of this, the meth heads then hold up big country and steal all his money and then turn him in. Sure. <laughs> yeah, if I ever had some ambition and uh, dedication, I would sit down and I could probably write something up, but I'm just too damn lazy to do it. You and Mike it. should that's, both do it, right together. That's the best story, though. That's that's, that's fantastic. A good story. I think I, I'm just now remembering you telling us that. Yeah, if you want to hear more, um, we're going to put in the show notes the episode of the Takedown podcast that Big Country was on. It's, <laughs> it's a pretty amazing. Um, so everyone should listen to that, too. So how much time did you get for this one bank robbery? 
When it was all said and done on my sentencing guidelines, I ended up with uh, 43 months, which is, you know, three and a half years. Okay. So they don't do it by how much money you get. It's by how many you do. Well, that does come into effect if you get, you know, if I had robbed extra banks and had more money, that could have bumped my time up. But this is the first felony I'd ever done. I've never really been arrested for anything before. The the grid is basically um, times you've been arrested for a felony. And then the other, the other point is how many you did. So he, he, he was on the upper left corner. Of the sentencing grid. <laughs> and there you go. Did you have a? Did you just have like the state issued lawyer or whatever? Yeah, I just okay. took the the court appointed. It was a, yeah. it wasn't state; it was federal. But yeah, because okay. you, you you weren't trying to fight it. You were just like, I did it. Well, no, I did it. I mean, I was just yeah. going to do my time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there's like a a scheduling punishment for or whatever a time grid, then. Is there any real reason, unless you're fighting it, to even pay for a lawyer? No. 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 The only pre- way, reason to pay for a lawyer is if you're innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Or or if you're you're guilty, but you think you have a chance to beat it. Exactly. Somehow. There you go. And, and they had you on camera, and you had the family, and they had the, you know, you're like, yeah, come much. on now. Let's just get me sentenced and get this shit over. <laughs> let's just get this over. Um, so how did the two of you meet once you're in prison? It's hard for me to remember exactly, but I would think the first time I probably talked to Mike and Sime was probably sitting on the steps outside the window of the big boy room All watching right. TV when I first got there. And yeah. what's the big and boy room? I don't, think I, and- I don't think I had a spot in that TV room yet. The big boy room was the big boy TV room, which was sort of the 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 TV rooms. We had four of them, and they were uh, more or less segregated. There was a um, Hispanic TV room. There's a black TV room. There was a, uh, one where uh, there's a sports TV room, which Jeff and I sort of established that anybody could go in. And then the big boy room was, I mean, that's a nice term for sort of white supremacist. Exactly. Ooh. You had your bikers, your meth cookers, those kind of guys were in there. Yeah. And I didn't have a spot yet. Eventually I would get a spot and I think big country would get a spot. Yeah, I had a spot eventually. Yeah. You had to sort of uh, graduate into it being there long enough. And then when you got a spot in there, you got yourself a custom chair made. Um, what? Wait, was there a carpenter yeah. in there? <laughs> yes, they had a custom chair. <laughs> or was Describe it just like a chairs. plastic chair with your name on it? No. Well, they were metal chairs, like, you know, like metal rod uh-huh. that had plastic on them, but they were like upholstered plastic. But they would take other old chairs over in what they called the CMS, which was the uh, Control Maintenance Services, whatever. Const- the guys over there had welders. They'd weld up and put arms rests and stuff yeah. on them. <laughs> <laughs> and you would get your spot. I mean, because it, it was a, I mean, there was a seating chart, more or less. Exactly. And, and you would get your spot, and then you would get your chair made and put your chair in your spot. And if you weren't going to be using your spot, like uh, before you got your chair in there, country, I know for me too, like if I wanted to go in there and watch a show and I didn't have a spot, I would find one of the guys that had a spot and say, oh, hey, are you going to be watching the movie tonight? And if they weren't, they you could go sit in their spot but would you have to buy but, it exactly like stamp give them some stamps or kick downs or something to no nah, not usually no no okay. no you sort of graduate into it and then and then yeah if you're friendly with the guys in there 
then uh then you could sit in somebody's spot and nobody cared, you know. But you had to have permission. Yeah, I mean you had what we were probably five across and about six deep in there as yeah. far as chairs, something like that. Yeah, five or six deep. We had a coffee table in the front right underneath the, the table. Yeah. And that's where people, if you, we bet on stuff in there, you'd have to get up and do push-ups on top of the coffee table. Yeah. <laughs> didn't work very what, good like, for me. I didn't fit on the table very yeah, well. Yeah, so. yeah. If you were if you were taller than like 5'10", uh, doing push-ups on the coffee table was a problem. But question, what kind of things would you bet on? Like the next commercial is going to be an AT&T commercial? Boxing was a big one. Boxing, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. And, okay. And, and uh, I ended up not doing a lot of push-ups there and probably – country you didn't either because we would always uh we would be the ones betting on the black guy or the hispanic guy <laughs> <laughs> i think i i owed push-ups in there to joe blumberg once in a while that was about yeah. it yeah it was amazing joe blumberg made it in there he was the only jewish guy in the unit <laughs> and somehow he made it in the white supremacist tv room. what wait what did well, he I thought, do i thought huey was a jewish guy too wasn't he or he said he was anyway i don't know i i can't remember i think he told me he was but he could have just been bullshitting too i don't know yeah yeah, it was something you keep under your hat, and you know, unless your name's Blumberg. <laughs> exactly. You, you can't when, you, when you got a couple bikers up in the front front row there. When we have Connolly and Bell were sitting up in front, and they were yeah. like as bikers you could get. Yeah, huge guys. I mean, I I don't want to made say, me look small. <laughs> I don't I don't want to say I don't want to say that they were. Yeah, I don't know. They were in their heart. I believe they were nice guys. Yeah, but. I don't know. We we won't get into that here. There were a lot of <laughs> yeah. They they always treated me good. I know that. Right, and and I I think if they knew if they knew people of the races that they just institutionally hated, if they actually got to know, I think they would have been fine with those of other races. <laughs> but you know, it was a very insular environment. So you guys were sitting outside of the big boy room and met that way. Yeah, probably. Why do you mean sitting outside? Like you hadn't earned a chair, so you would stand outside like you're watching from the outside? Well, well, like if there was a uh, really good movie playing, you know, like a, a movie that the institution had rented or, you know, it was uh, it was just a good feature film or a, there was some sort of boxing match or, or sports that was going on and all the guys were using their chairs. So... I couldn't get in. He couldn't get in. Oh, so we're okay. sitting on the stairs outside watching. Yeah, there's some little steps that went up, and there was a big yeah. like picture window that you could see through. That's so yeah. the guards could see and see what's going on. Okay. Right. So you guys are just standing there like, hey, you're big and white, and I'm big and white. We should be friends. <laughs> I don't know how I struck it up. I listened to Mike talk a little bit. You know, I was observational. I could tell. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm no genius, but I'm not a stupid guy either, so I don't really want to hang out and with guys that I can't have a decent conversation right. with, which was a good population. Of yeah. People there, so. <laughs> good percentage. And I think that's kind of how we, we, I can remember we'd sit out there and we'd take turns. Cause I, I, my mom would send me the, uh, the local paper in and we'd get like the Sunday paper and do the, we'd take turns going around doing the, uh, the New York times crossword puzzle and stuff. Mm. Oh, we should so, also mention yeah. that you were actually from Sheridan, Oregon, right? I'm not from Sheridan, no. I was from a town just a few miles away. But close, I, I mean, close enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, there's some inter interesting stuff there, too. He, some good stories, but yeah. He was, he, he was one of the people that those of us who weren't from Oregon called the Gones. They go, yeah, the Gones. <laughs> what does that mean? 
Is there an Oregonian? Oregonian, a gone. The gone. gone. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so Mike talks a lot about how there was no orientation, and he wished that he had known certain things going in, um, such as at four o'clock you have to be a certain place. Um, how did you feel about there not being an orientation, or did you actually get one and they just didn't give one to Mike? Well. I don't know how much did you spend any time in like a, a FCI or anything pre-trial, Mike? With the no. feds, or were you all county? Yeah, I was seven months in county, and then a couple, you know, a couple. I had some uh, diesel therapy on the way, but nothing. Did you? Me. Okay. Yeah, well, see, I I did a little bit of time down in Littleton, Colorado, at the FCI. Oh, right. Yeah, because you flew. The, you the, flew the up FTC, there. I guess it is detention sure. center. Yeah. And uh, so I've been on air con, Christy. Oh, nice. Yeah, I did I did a couple times. Yeah, a couple times. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I got a little bit of orientation into the federal system there with the four o'clock stand up count and everything. Okay. They were already doing that there. But yeah, most of my time was spent in Cheyenne and then in Laramie. They moved us back and forth. So it's like I once I went to trial and pled guilty in Cheyenne and the marshals took me and moved me up to Laramie. And I sat there while they were doing their pre-sentence investigation before they moved me back to Cheyenne for sentencing. And then uh, from Cheyenne, I think they picked me up and took me straight down with the marshals down to, uh, forget the name of the place, it's down by Colorado Springs or something for the uh, plane. They flew me on the plane to El Reno. Oh, man. So were they trying to get you close to home? I don't know if if they were or what, but it sure worked out that way. Yeah, I mean, I could have right. ended up anywhere. I was they, very, very lucky. I think they generally do that because uh, if they don't, then you, you know, you obviously would petition because you would want to be able to have your yeah. family have visit visits. And stuff. And stuff. Yeah. Well, it gives them better leverage to keep you in line. If they, how mm-hmm. they're going to punish you? They can't right. take you and move you across the country to punish right. you for doing something bad if you're already across the country. Right. See, yeah, so, they definitely yeah. would do that. If if you like, I mentioned the term diesel therapy. That is what happens when you misbehave, and then oh, they yeah. just they put you on a on a world tour of of oh, county jails and, and bullshit. Yeah. Well, we we had uh, we had a mutual friend in there that got a good dose of that when he first got sentenced. Uh, Skip's brother Robbie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about how he was so pissed off at him and was just a total dick when he first got in. That that's he. I think he said like the first six or seven months after yeah. he got sentenced to the feds that he was just on a bus or truck, whatever, getting moved all over the place. <laughs> right. They took until him. he decided to calm down. Right. Right. That would be terrible. Because you can't ever earn the big boy chair. No, like, always... well, for me, being a big guy, the worst part about that would be the black box. I, I can't handle that. What's mm-hmm. this? <laughs> this is like an aluminum box that when they put you, because you put a belly chain around you, right? Mm-hmm. You've got your handcuffs on the belly chain and everything. But then they put your wrist together and they put this black box that slides over there with a lock to it that locks your wrists. You can't move them. Oh. They're directly in front of you, so you really restricts your movement. Not mm-hmm. good. And, and you that- you've never, your face has never felt itchier. Than when you're oh, exactly. <laughs> you can't. Oh, 
That's terrible. So I only had the black box once, I think, when uh, basically when the marshals picked me up in Amarillo to take me to El Reno the first time when I yeah. got arrested. Once you get to know some of the marshals, like when I was in King County Jail, I, I went back and forth to court enough. They, they're pretty lax about that bullshit. You know, they're like, well, yeah. When they figure out you're not really a flight risk. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you're not an asshole. And you're not, a, you're you're not, not an asshole. Right. Exactly. Um, well, Mike, while I was doing some um, research for this, uh, I researched uh, Sheridan a little bit and they must've heard your mm-hmm. pleas because as of January, 2013, they actually have an orientation handbook. Hey, it's online though. I don't remember anything like that. That's for sure. <laughs> it's that would have been great because I think I spent three days in the hole. Oh, and then they let me out. I would have been. Uh, I could have spent some of that time reviewing the rules so I wouldn't get in trouble. Yeah, I don't know if they hand it out, but it's definitely online for you to look at. And uh, here's an interesting. Well, I thing. don't know. If that's going to help a guy in the hole to have an online <laughs> exactly. hand. So they they put you in the hole when you first got there before you got to your unit, huh? Yeah, I think it was three days, and they they said it was like classification or some sort of bullshit. I don't know. That's weird because I mean I, I got there around dinner time or just before. And yeah, they they did it all that night. I I was down to Unit 4 that night. I'm starting to think that it was because you had already been in the feds. You'd been to El Reno. Uh, You'd been Yeah, that might have been the case. So they needed to look at my jacket to to see, you know, whether I was right, (laughs) whether I was right for Sheridan. Uh, which they yeah, didn't. Exactly. They they didn't do that before they sent me to SeaTac because they sent me to SeaTac to be part of the work crew to get that place ready to open. And when I got there, they said, "Oh, he's medium high. He can't leave the unit." So I ended up not being. I oh, you mean when you when you were going? Yeah, when you when you were getting out. Yeah, I think. You yeah, I was nine months from getting out. That. They sent yeah. me up there. And then, and then it's like it, the morning came to where we were going to go outside and do some landscaping or whatever. And they said, Oh no, he's medium high. He can't do anything. So I ended up being unit orderly and serving oh. meals for <laughs> that nine months. It was complete bullshit. So, um, what I noticed, Mike, you've talked about how your uniform that you wore was all khaki. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reading the orientation, it's now green, green pants and <clears throat> green, uh, t-shirts. Oh, t-shirts. Yeah. T-shirts. Hey, we just yeah. had the white t-shirts. Yeah, but then we had the um like the khaki short sleeves. The khaki overshirt, yeah. 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 Short so sleeves, long green. sleeves for the winter time. Mm-hmm. With our long our hooded uh, jackets, winter jackets and stuff. Oh, I forgot about the long sleeve uh shirts that we'd always get like uh, starched up. You'd have one that was all pressed up for visiting <laughs> right. hours and stuff. <laughs> I've I mean, seen those, those prison photos would stand before. up on their own. Um, so you talk- well, I've got one of the worst ones because I, I, I've got some pictures around here someplace that I took at visiting. I don't know if Mike remembers that I one time I went and just shaved my whole head. Uh, I yes, I, I do. I had pictures in the visiting room with my head shaved like that. Wow. It's, That's some acreage. The, oh, man. the wor- I think the funniest and the worst part about those prison is the background where it would be like a beach with a yeah. palm tree. <laughs> Right, It'd be some <laughs> bullshit. No, that's exactly what it was too. There was something like that behind us. Yeah, but then Come you on, still have fooling it. Yeah, but you still have the prison issue garb on, so you're not fooling anyone. Right. You're you're not in Cabo Just, San Lucas, okay? Give me the cinder block. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how you were the orderly. How did you get jobs? How were you assigned jobs in there? 
Well, the the unit manager, what was that guy's name? He was a local too. Wait, I forget. Uh, Not Waits, the other guy, the the, the one that was a cop. Oh, we call a cop, but Payne. He was he was a guard. Payne. What was, what was his name again? Yeah, Payne. He was the unit counselor. Payne. Yeah, the unit counselor. He was the one that kind of handled that stuff. Yeah, I was. I remember when I, when I first got there, when I was living on the flats, they put me in the kitchen. Yeah, that's the go-to and, move. Yeah, they're going to put you in the kitchen first, and I did that for a little while, and I transferred out of there. I think I tried to go up to the the rec yard for a while, working up there, mm-hmm. and then they ended up getting the unit job where basically all I did was empty the trash cans. Yeah, unit unit orderly. So. My evolution there was I got assigned to the kitchen um, and after a little while, my job in the kitchen was to load the seg carts, which are the food carts that go down to feed the inmates at segregation. And there's a, there's a lot of um, stuff that goes on there, like passing notes in and um, passing notes in and out and passing contraband in and out. And so there was some hustle going on there, but the worst part about that job is like three times a day on the days you're working, you know, you have to get up and go do that. And the first time is like 3am, you got to wake up to go load the breakfast carts and then you go back to the unit, take a nap, you know, go there at nine and load the lunch carts and then, you know, go back at three or whatever. So I couldn't get out of that fast enough. And uh, I can't remember the second job I had. Maybe I think I was a unit orderly, which is a pretty sweet gig, but you don't really get paid anything. It's like $5 a month. Yeah, it's not much. You get more money if you work in the kitchen and stuff yeah. like that. Those guys make more money, but it's still, it's it's nothing, you know. And the way I got uh, my good job was I used to watch uh, soap operas uh, in the <laughs> afternoon before going out to the yard at 1. We'd watch uh, Young and the Restless at 11, and I think All My Children was on at noon. And I would watch it in the big boy TV room with this guy named uh, Richard Locken. Do you remember him? I remember country? Richard. He showed us his video over in uh, Waits' office one time. Me, you, yeah, and he, I think Todd maybe was in there too. I can't remember. He He had a standoff with the cops. And got shot, and he had a hole in his back. Uh, and and it was almost you know, like a chicken wing on his on one side. It was a big old like he was missing ribs up there or something. It was yeah. pretty nasty. Yeah, he, they blasted a hole in his back, and it was still open. And he was always like you know facing those medical issues or whatever. And he was, uh, I found out he was getting close to getting out. And he was a nice guy, and I liked hanging out with him. And he was funny, um, but he was the unit clerk, which was a pretty sweet gig. Because he got to go into the office with Mr. Payne um, once or twice a week and kind of have the run of the place because Payne would go do his thing and then Locken and then later me would have access to the copier, which yeah. you could make a lot of copies for guys who were doing legal work. You know, they were trying mm-hmm. to get, get themselves out. So, and then also you get a typewriter in your cell because you're in charge of the orderlies and the payroll. And when I got that typewriter, I was able to uh, start typing gambling tickets. Yeah, um, Mike went to work for me for a while there. <laughs> I, I was paying I was paying him for typing. <laughs> That's true because country one of his uh, hustles was he he ran a gambling ticket, and um, and I typed up tickets for uh, most of the gambling operations, and I had an an extra 
um, typewriter ribbon that I would hide from the guards when I'd be done typing my thing. Then I'd pop that ribbon out, pop my payroll ribbon in and uh, hide the, the gambling one. So uh, that I ended up getting back to what I was saying. I ended up getting Richard Lockins clerk job and boy, was I, a, I was Tevia after that. I was a, I was a rich man uh, after I got the clerk job. <laughs> So you would, would people come to you and say, Hey, I need you, I need you to type up this legal work for me and they would pay you. Yeah. 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 I also typed a lot of legal work too, because I mean, a lot of guys were, you know, most of them were fooling themselves, but that's that's fine. They all had had enough money to pay me to type up. They all had dreams. (laughs) Everyone was innocent except me and big country and Jeff. So you would get money through these jobs and Mm -hmm. each one paid different. So, um, how else would you get money? Cause it doesn't seem like you made that much money no matter what your job was. Oh yeah. My, my, uh, the unit orderly jobs generally were five bucks a month. And then like the head orderly, I think made like a hundred bucks a month, 130 bucks a, a month, month, something like that. Yeah. And then, uh, my job, my job, I think I made, I think it was 29 cents an hour. Really? Uh, I don't even I remember what I was making. I can't remember how many hours I worked, but the more important thing was that you had some some kind of hustle. Yeah, my hustle kind of just fell in my lap. It wasn't like I was out there searching it out like I was a criminal mastermind. It's just your your celly was your celly was running a ticket, and then you took it over, or something like that. Well, he he was running the street street money, and I was running the units. So okay. I was in gotcha. charge of all the unit stuff, all the commissary and stamps, and then he was doing the street to street freeze outs. The freeze outs. outs, yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of just a dumb luck that I don't even let me think. Well, I I'd taken over that room with Vern before Vern got out, that nice big corner room. I had like the I had like Before the, before uh, Vern took all our fantasy football stamps and, and Exactly, and split with him. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, he he was a piece of work, man. He was a piece of work. But hey, I got a good sell out of it, and then yeah, uh, and then this this Tim guy that was running the book, he'd got into the unit, and he was living down in the flats, and he come up and offered me a hundred bucks to let him move in and be my cellmate, but I had to let him have the bottom bunk mm-hmm. for that hundred bucks. Okay, okay. So, so I did it. We need to talk about this because Mike has talked about you guys have referenced trading roommates and stealing people's roommates when they get when they get <laughs> put in whatever. Poaching. Did this happen a lot? Is this normal? A fair amount, yeah. Because uh, having a good roommate was key. If you oh, yeah. didn't have somebody you could live with, it life was hard. Mm-hmm. There was some people in there you did not want to be roommates. Yeah, with. you you look down on those flats and you're like, you know, your guy, your guy, like my celly Todd McMichael, you know, nicest guy in the world, great celly. Uh, he went to the hole with with his dirty UA, yeah. and and then I I walk I walk out and look over the flats and go, holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> I need I to get Jeff one up here. Hippie looking guy with a long ponytail that just reeked of garlic because he ate the. That's all he ate was garlic. It seemed like it's like, man, you wouldn't want to be with that guy. No. Um, So you talk about this exchange of money and stamps were a type of um, money that you guys would exchange too. And was anything given to you for free? 
for free? That you didn't have to get out of the commissary. Like, would, could you Razors, get shampoo? Okay. Toilet paper. Yeah. 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 So, that kind of stuff. Paper towels. Yeah. So, that was a big thing. It was like once a week we'd get our supplies and everybody would want to get, you'd have like the, remember like the brown folded paper towels from school and stuff in the dispenser? Yeah. They'd bring those in and you'd want to get your stack of those for yourself. So, yeah. And that, that so that thing, was have free. Paper towels. Um, yeah, all that stuff was free. Because you yeah, said- the, the razors were pretty important to me because I kept, I kept my head shaved, so I had to yeah. like every day I would try to go get another razor because they were like single blade razors, and when it comes to yeah, they shave your head, razors. you need a bunch of them. But so, did you get shaving cream and stuff, or that was a commissary thing? Oh, I can't. Remember. I don't think they even sold it on the commissary. I think you just had to use soap or something. I think they did sell like really cheap, like Barbasol or something like that. Because I'm, I'm looking at the current remember. list that they have here, and um, mm-hmm. one of them is deodorant. Would you get deodorant given Not to you? Free. Oh, so no. so. No, I think you had to get that. So here it tells you something. They there was a job there that paid five dollars a month, and a yeah. thing <laughs> of deodorant is two dollars and ninety cents. So yeah. keeping that into perspective, that well, you with inflation, can... they might be making more money nowadays. So well, most, <laughs> most guys were making five dollars. Most guys had unit orderly jobs, and we're actually making five dollars a month because that was the payroll that I had to type out every month. And there were like twenty five guys at least in the unit making five dollars a month. But that's... I didn't care. I wanted the unit orderly job. Yeah, oh, because you don't got to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> right, you got your hustle, and you don't want to interfere with your hustle. Right. If all you got to do is take out the trash once a day. It takes you fifteen minutes. And I didn't even do that. After a certain point, I'd just give somebody some commissary, and they did the job <laughs> right. for me. The, exactly. So that, that's another yeah. question. Um, I was going to ask you if you had to check in, like you you have a boss that you're doing, or did you pay that out? And then um, follow up question is: Could you just go? Nah, I'm good on the job. I'm fine. I don't need one. No, you had no, to. You had to. No, you had to have some type of job, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have to necessarily yeah. do it. Mike Mike was probably way more controlled on his job because he had to deal with the the unit counselor so much. Yeah. With me, as yeah. long as the garbage was emptied, it didn't matter. Right. Yeah. They didn't weren't like who, checking who, to make sure did I did it. it. They didn't care. If it overflowed, then they would come to me and say, hey, who's supposed to <laughs> empty the trash? And I'd say, oh, uh, that's big country. And then he they would say, hey, what's going on? And he would check with his guy. Like, why didn't you empty my trash? We had one guy in there. Was it Knowles that had uh, his job was just to take care. There was this uh, gangbanger from the L.A. area that got paralyzed, got shot up and paralyzed. And he was, yeah. and his job was just to take care of him and bathe him and stuff like that. Yeah, Charles. Charles, yeah. He was he was an angry, angry man. Yeah. That guy in the wheelchair, he would not. not oh happy. no, yeah, no. We're talking about whispers now. Whispers. Is that who? Is that who it was? Yeah. I don't remember the names. He was a big guy. I know that. He was a pretty yeah. big guy. Yeah. Called him whispers because he 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 couldn't speak above a whisper, and all he had to say was really terrible things. So you didn't want to lean in <laughs> and hear any of it. Yeah. There's a lot. Of, I I can remember so many faces from that place. I don't remember many names, but I right. remember a lot of faces. Um, okay, I have just a couple more questions. We've gone really long. These, the, this is so interesting. I could keep you on for hours. Um, can you explain the flats and the shoe? I got nothing on the shoe because I was never in there. You were so. never, Mike. Did you ever get put in the shoe? <laughs> well, the shoe was where I had to sit for the three days when I got there. Segregated housing unit. It's also called the hole, um, and it's where I almost went uh, when I 
didn't know where to stand for stand up counts where Jeff almost went when he couldn't pee for the UA. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, that's, that's the bad place. It's a place you don't want to be. Yeah. You don't want to be there. You're, you're locked up with somebody and you not, don't necessarily know that the person you're going to be in there with is somebody you want to be with either. So yeah, it's two people to a cell in there, but uh, I'm surprised I never went as many times as I got caught with mm-hmm. tickets on my pocket and stuff, you know, yeah, <laughs> they, they could have sent me to the hole and they never did. I still, yeah, they, I mean, I I think the gambling um, was just something that they uh, they probably if people I don't know weren't getting hurt. They looked the other way. Exactly, it's not drugs, and people are entertained. And if if nobody's getting beat up over it, it's fine. And I do attribute a lot of my good treatment. You know, a lot of the hacks and stuff didn't treat me that bad. They all knew that I was local and going to be getting out pretty soon. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you so know you where they live. To, you don't want to piss off somebody that, you know, could sneak up on you or something. Yeah. Going to see you at the Fred Meyer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually ran into Waits. Waits was, they have, oh, uh, God, here, here in Kaiser, beer. they have this Iris Festival every year and they had uh-huh. a big beer tent. And I was in there at the beer tent. Well, I was still on supervised release, but mm-hmm. I saw him in there. And then lost track of him, never saw him again. He saw me, and he split. I know he split as soon as he, he saw me. He was our unit manager. He was quite an asshole. He was really the only one who ever tried to shut down our fantasy. He was an alcoholic. Sports thing. Yeah, and at lunch, he would go out to his car and drink. Oh. Yeah. He was like a Texan, I think. I think he was from Texas. Yeah, he was, not, he, was not a, yeah he was not a native gone. Um, okay, yeah, and absolutely. so the flats. What, what are the flats all about? You guys both talk about that a lot. Well, when you first get in the unit, you're not going to have a cell. And they've got like this, you know, it's a two-tiered system. And out in the middle is this triangle area. And they that originally would have been like a recreation when they were building the things. But they were so overpopulated, they threw a bunch of bunks out there with wall walkers and had people. That's where you had to live until a room opened up. Mm -hmm. And uh, very loud, no privacy. Yeah. The only time you're getting any jack time is if you went to take a shower or something. Uh, or you just really snuck it, you know, like you, you waited <laughs> for your roommate to really be snoring so you could be sure, you know, because otherwise if they were awake, they could, you know. Yeah. And you didn't have anything. any, you didn't have any restrooms. You have to go use somebody's cell oh. because they, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. They yeah. didn't have a, like extra restrooms. There was, a, there was a, a toilet in every cell. Oh, that's terrible. So there was, Yeah. So you kind of had to hook up with somebody and say, hey, let me use your cell to take a dump. You know? right. So you need and to get out of the flats as soon as possible, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And it it took months, though. It wasn't like... It didn't take me that long. Oh, you got it through... Take, I, think, I think for me, I got like four Danny, Danny McEnany got me up there. He needed a cellmate. Whoever he had left, I can't remember who it was. And mm-hmm. he, he come down and asked me because I guess I was one of the, you know, decent looking ones that was on the flats <laughs> at the time. Right. Which one doesn't so look went, like a big farter? You know, that's what I exactly. would. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the big thing with him was, is after he got me in the cell, he was like, you know, he didn't want to come out and ask me, but he's like, he goes, I need to see your paperwork. Because right. there, there was a lot of people there that were very upset with me because, you know, a lot of the crank dealers and these guys that got big sentences, they were so upset that I was only there for like three right. years. And right. they... They they figured for sure when I first got there that I must have had a co-conspirator and I ratted yeah. somebody out or something. They wanted to see my paperwork to make yeah. sure I wasn't a rat. So a short, I didn't have a short that stuff sentence on me. is suspicious. 
Exactly. Yeah, where yeah, are you supposed so, to get your papers? Well, well you have my, them. They didn't, I didn't have me mine on me. I actually had to, I think my stuff got sent to my parents or something when I oh, left okay. uh, Wyoming. So I actually had to call my mom and say, hey, you know, send my stuff in here. And she said, well, what do you need? I said, because they think I'm a rat. I got to prove I'm not a rat. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, wow. I had my stuff with me because I went through all that process and I had my pre-sentence investigation and all my shit. Yeah, and they took all that stuff from me when I went through Air America. But nobody took, nobody had, asked me for it because I had six years. So, oh, yeah. yeah, that's a decent But when you have time. anything like less than four years, it starts to look like, uh, who's this motherfucker who right. probably put <laughs> four guys away it's, for 30 years? <laughs> I think it was more jealousy than anything else. It was jealous right, that they did I remember Perry. Perry was one that really didn't like me because of my short sentences. He never well, liked he was me. A, he was he a was good a guy to, ha- to yeah to not like you because that means you're a good person. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, he was a bit of a dick. You when did you get out, big country? I got out in early '98. And Mike, when were you out? Go- I got out in late '98. So how did you guys reconnect and become friends again? I can't remember. I I got a hold of you somehow, I think, before I moved to California, maybe, or after I moved to California. Mm-hmm. So I think it was maybe after. We've been more or less in touch ever since. Yeah, it's not it's not like we're we're best buds since we've been out, but I mean, you right. know, it's when you, you see somebody that you haven't seen since high school, you know, or something, you, you, you talk to them just like you were still back in high school. Right. That's kind yeah, of the way crazy. we're talking right now. Right. Um, so uh, I want to end this on a happy note. Both Mike and Brian <laughs> tricked women into marrying them. And yeah. they, <laughs> so I just want to know, how are you both doing today? What are your lives like? Well, I think everybody who listens yeah. to this show knows yeah. what my life is like. I got a fucking stump, but... <laughs> Stump. <laughs> Who would have figured you'd be the one with the stump? You'd think I would be. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I guess it works out certain ways. Uh, well, I've been married for let's see. Next Wednesday will be 15 years oh, now. Oh, congratulations! Uh, and I actually met my wife on the internet. I was living up here in Oregon. I was almost completely done with supervised release when I met her. I wasn't looking for anybody. I just kind of met her in a chat room and struck up a conversation. Went from there. So we've been together for fifteen years now. And did uh, you tell her, dude? You go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> charm. Yeah. You're you're pretty charming. I'll give you credit. Okay. Yeah. And did you tell her from the beginning? Did she know your story right I away? I told her right on. Yeah, I was going to hold that right. back or hide it. I told her straight up. Right. There's no reason to lie about that and then try and bring it out later. So. So thank you so much. Uh, so other than that, oh, oh okay. Nope, you go. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> oh, it's well, just... I was going to say, other than that, I've been moved back to Oregon after living in California for five years and been here for the last 10 working and uh, just getting by day by day as a blue collar kind of guy. Sounds good. He's an animal lover too, by the way. Oh. He, 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 has, he has dogs. Uh, he has all kinds of other animals that he actually kills, but he loves them, right, Brian? <laughs> he loves them first. Yeah, I've got a little hungry. mini farm. I raise pigs and chickens, and we've got, yeah. what, four dogs and two cats. 
So he kills some of his pets, but only yeah. only to eat. Them. Only pets, the delicious food. ones. <laughs> oh man, I'll send you some sausage, man. You'd love it. <laughs> only kill the delicious ones. That's yeah, a good he point. loves them to death. Is basically what happens. Yeah, <laughs> hugs them till they turn into bacon. All right, thank you so much, Brian, for joining us yeah, today. Man. This is Appreciate a lot of fun. It. Yeah, that's, that's. I don't have a problem talking about it. It's my life. It's what happens. So I have no All problem. Right. That's what's made me who I am. Check this out. This Warren G, you know what I'm saying? Chilling with my man Slick Rick, you know? And we're going to give y'all a little tale about that jail stuff, you know? So, Rick, why don't you run it, homie? Stay tuned for Episode 5, Your Questions. If you have questions that you would like Mike to answer, you can hit us up on LittleRedBandwagon.com, on our Facebook page, LittleRedBandwagon, um, at our Twitter at LRB podcast or send me an email at littleredbandwagon at gmail.com or if you'd like your voice to be heard um, send us a voicemail 802-432-8285 thanks Because they made a rape attempt. Thank goodness, fell. For the next he well out, here go to see you. Ricky Walters back up, your bell down. The CEO couldn't see the rape, the cute little snitch mask figure. Fast trigger, you'll be back, you little. Did